Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, it's episode 227. We're recording this live on December 2nd, 2021, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today uh, across the sea uh, by Mr. Barry Kirby. Good evening. It's great to across be here the pond, again. The, over the pond. What across the pond? Over the across way? The across the across. pond? Isn't it? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, you're here, uh, and I'm happy you're here because we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how artificial intelligence and vehicles may be able to adapt to our needs, and later we're going to answer some questions from the community about working at a company that doesn't use a certain tool that you're used to, how to approach a situation if you don't have a UX or human factors job title, but do the work, and creating a portfolio with projects that don't have real users. But first, we have some programming notes for you all. Uh, and this one's a pretty big one here. This one's uh, social thoughts. We're going to change this up a little bit. Um, so we've been doing social thoughts for a while now, probably a couple months. Uh, and what it has intended to be is kind of reaching out to the community to get your voice involved in the show. And a lot of the times, uh, you know, we, we put this stuff out cause we don't know what we're going to talk about because our patrons choose the news here. And so what we're going to be doing going forward, starting tomorrow, we're going to actually allow the public to vote on the news story that they want to hear. Um, this is still going to be a reward for our patrons cause they get higher vote share, right? The public's voice is only going to be account for 20% of the total vote uh, that we have of patrons, right? So it'll it'll count for 20% of however many patrons that we have. Uh, and it'll be, um, you know, it can act as tiebreakers or just add on to the total. Um, this will give everyone kind of a chance to chime in on the stories that we talk about on the show and give everyone a sense of ownership while still kind of rewarding our patrons and giving them a, a little bit stronger of a vote, if you will, for supporting us financially. Um, I think it's going to be a cool change. Well, I'm excited to see it, how it uh, all... Um, plays out here uh we have a couple other updates here so um team c's those human factors minutes are going swimmingly uh barry actually did the latest one from a hotel room so uh you know we're <laughs> we're chugging along on those yeah oil rigs um and those will continue to come out through the end of this month uh while the team c's effort is still going by the way quick update on that i think we're at 17 million last i checked so Pretty close, pretty, pretty close. Good. And then last but not least, of course, there's uh, there's the holidays coming up for everyone's awareness. Uh, we're going to be around, I think, until the 16th uh, on this program. So you got two more shows with us. But don't worry, we have some content in the works that will come out on the 23rd and the 30th for you all. Um, hopefully, hopefully both days, maybe just one, depending on how much time it takes us to do this stuff. So Stay tuned for that. It's going to be our typical recap of the year's uh, stories, kind of a highlight of stuff that wasn't covered on the show that we want to talk about in, in just a free form. Um, so uh, you can expect that. Uh, anyway, I've talked long enough. Let's get to why you the reason you are all here. It's. That's right. It is Human Factors News. Barry, what is the news story this week? So this week, we're talking about the next generation of AI-enabled cars that will understand you. So in the emerging era of smart vehicles, it's the cars that will manage the drivers. 
We told him what cars that buy recognise the emotional and cognitive states of their drivers can prevent them from doing anything dangerous. So monitoring sy systems will need to have insight into the state of the entire vehicle and everyone in it to have a full understanding of what's shaping driver behaviour and how that behaviour affects safety. People are starting to realise that measuring impairment is more nuanced or, com or it's just simply more complicated than making sure that the driver's eyes are on the road and it requires a view beyond just the driver. These monitoring systems need to have insights into the state of the entire vehicle and everyone in it to have a full understanding of what's shaping the driver behaviour and how that, how that basically affects what's going on. So how do we know when a driver isn't paying attention? So simply by tracking the driver's head position and the eye closure rate, basically you need to understand that larger context. Where does that need for interior sensing and not only driver monitoring come into play? Our previous episode uh, looked at the US uh, looked looked at the use of artificial intelligence outside the car, whereas this show is all about how the use of AI and associated associated technology can be utilized to get a better understanding of the current state of the driver and all of the influences inside the car. So, Nick, how does the use of AI and monitoring inside the car grab you? Yeah, it grabs me pretty well. So, look, I think this is this is great because it kind of is a complementary. Uh, episode to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about recently, right? Um, you know, my general impressions here is that this is exciting to see that we're thinking about the entire system, not just like, okay, well, how does a driver deal with an autonomous system, but how can an AI system monitor the driver and provide subtle recommendations to that driver? Also, last week, or not last week, two weeks ago, I guess, we looked at how the car itself can interact with the system outside of the vehicle. So we're looking at this whole thing holistically. And then even further back, we talked about AI and in, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so AI has been a pretty, pretty big topic on the show recently. So I, I guess our patrons want to hear a lot about AI, which I, I'm happy to talk about. It's, it's awesome. I think this comes with a lot of interesting questions um, more than answers. There's certainly some applications that we can look at for this type of technology, AI inside the vehicle, monitoring the driver, monitoring the passengers. I think the interesting piece of it comes um, perhaps with the ethics. And that's where I'll leave it. But what did you think of this article? So I thought it was really interesting um, because the it is clearly a next step. I think the Certainly, when we when we spoke in the, uh, the the last episode, we spoke a lot about how drivers' helmets have to be there, poised, ready to take action. And we know that it's it's almost that um, um, task is seen, task is done type approach. That we know that drivers are just not going to sit there; they're not going to be in the loop enough just to jump in uh, at a moment's notice. Otherwise, you might as well be driving. Um, so this is really getting I get uh, really appreciate appreciating the fact that. In autonomous vehicles, in particular, that they're not going to be doing, they're not going to be doing that, and this would really allow us to recognise the state of what people, what people are doing. But just in everyday driving tasks as well, it's the um, the recognition that other things go on in the car. You're, you know, as a driver, you're not just solely focused on on the driving. You, you've got the radio on. You've got people in the back, um, the kids crying, all that sort of uh, that sort of a thing, and they all add to the general ambience of of your driving task. In fact, it really made me think. I don't know if you had that. Uh, remember that Simpsons episode where Homer has to design a car, and he ends up designing the car, and basically the driver is in a bubble at the front, um, and that is the ideal possibly for many people. But we're not there, and I think this this sort of recognises that. So, 
yeah, I, th I think it's 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 good, but I think we need to get stuck into it a bit more. Um, should we have a look at where we're at with the uh, basically refresh everybody on where we are with the current state of AI systems within cars? Yeah, that's a great segue. I was going to say, why don't we take a look at this? Yeah, so let's take a look at AI inside cars. Then we'll maybe talk about the human factors issues uh, with the drivers and passengers. And then we'll link it all back to the story like we usually do. We circle back and talk about all this stuff. So let's talk about AI systems in cars, right? So we we have the elephant in the room, which is autonomous vehicles. Um, and that we talked in depth uh, for last week, you know. So I keep saying last week. It was two weeks ago. Um so so go back and listen to that discussion for more of a state on how autonomous vehicles themselves are doing. I think we can look at kind of AI in the sense of a big picture in terms of um, automotive technology, right? Because there's there's various ways in which AI is being utilized from start to finish of the development life cycle of this uh, of automobiles, right? So you have uh, everything from um, development of the concept. Uh, you have like I'm thinking like maybe even uh, AI models of like wind resistance. You have that. Right. And and this is talking about the holistic thing. And we'll get to inside the cabin here last. But um, you have you have kind of looking at the holistic, uh, the, the air models. You have um, even AI in terms of the assembly line and manufacturing. Uh, so whether or not a car needs a certain piece, how to optimize that uh, whole uh, manufacturing piece to make sure that the timing of systems are just right and all that stuff. And then you also have um, AI on the road. Like I said, that's kind of the, what we talked about last week. And then this week, we're talking more about inside the cabin, monitoring drivers, passengers, that type of thing. It's almost worth it to take a step back and look at AI in terms of, you know, just, just AI, not not necessarily even in the cabin, but uh, we certainly can look at that, too. I'm thinking for AI, you know, it's it's good for these complex solutions that we may not necessarily have the time or resources to have a human do those things. Um, and it's right now it's kind of viable for these automated vehicle use cases. And I think that's where we're at right now. We're kind of just on the threshold of understanding how these automated vehicles uh can be can leverage ai to be effective right but i think there's a lot of drawbacks with this you know there these these models they're becoming so large because there's a lot of things that you need to account for and you can start to extrapolate this to inside the cabin too right and, and understanding human behavior is incredibly difficult thing humans are bad at it and so it's like you know we're, we're better than most uh, other species and understanding human behavior, <laughs> so but even <laughs> so, right? Like, uh, we're, we're probably the best thing we have at it, and it's still difficult to read and understand body language, um, or even you know inflection and tone and all these Im really important things when it comes to communication. And so, if you're trying to um, to sort of uh, develop an artificial intelligence system that is trying to monitor that stuff inside the cabin. You're gonna have you're gonna need a bunch of data for this type of thing. You're gonna need uh, understanding of how decisions are made um, on the uh, on the models themselves, right? Well, the data comes in. How does that model make decisions based on that data that comes in? Um, 
there's a, there's a lot of things that go into artificial intelligence and uh you know safety is another piece of it right um we can talk about this with some specific examples later but uh i'm thinking of like the case where maybe the maybe the car or automated system within within the vehicle misunderstands what a uh human is doing and creates a situation where um it then puts the human at risk because of uh a um exposure to a a what's the word i'm looking for a, a, exposure to that bad stimuli yeah so like it might pull the car over where that might be more dangerous than you know just driving forward anyway that that's kind of some of the things i'm thinking about what about you barry where's where's the current state of ai to you like what what key things do you want to bring out so I think the, I mean, one of the big things that I think we should be looking at is is regulation as well, and the impact of regulation is going to have on on AI in, in general. So there's all sorts of things around um, um, personal information. So in the EU, we've got GDPR, the um, the the ability to understand where all your data is being used and how it's being used and the the appropriateness of that. Um, and really, there's almost a big hammer to crack small nut at the moment we don't really know how ai is going forward and how that's got how that is going to play but we've got some really um again sledgehammer rules that really could be a, a nut, um, stifle how ai is is developed and, and going on and moving forward um but i think the some of the interesting bits here are going to be around where ai in automotive is 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 going to be in where that's going um and so yeah, to drive into some of that, I guess, is we've, we've got a AI in, in, in AI technology and automotive has got um, a whole bunch of bits around it that just we really we, we're starting to get to use, but it's almost at the at really that the, the precipice of things that we could do really well. So we've got to have the decisions that it makes. We've got to have them. They've got to be understandable. People have got to drill into them and understand why they're making the decisions, which goes back to the point that you were making earlier. So they'll use neural networks to come up with these decisions, but we've got to understand why. And they've got to make the same decisions on a repeatable basis. So, you know, it, not just choosing A on one day and, um, and B on the next, and not understanding why that's going to happen. Um, and then the the thing that always trips a lot of this thing up is the edge cases, is when things are not hap uh, th things happen that you don't expect, and how does it handle that? Um, and will it do it in a, in a really good way? So the current AI, gets used on sort of speech recognition, user interfaces, diagnostics and maintenance um, and things like that. Uh, vision recognition, so making sure that you, you know, thing, I, I stayed in lane and, and, and things like that. Um, but as we get for, as we going forward, the the driving element is more and more being taken over by by AI. We've talked about things like Tesla and other things in the past about having their um, auto drive capabilities. And we, we starting to get, uh, a lot more down that route of how could we, um, how do a car's taken over more of the driving task? Um, so we, we should be able to see in the future that actually software is doing a lot of the driving. We've seen elements of where uh, taxi services, for example, will be expected not to have a driver in them. You'll get in the, get in the vehicle and it will take you where you need to be. Um, there's going to be some issues around that around you know how do we do the the software development and the the cyber security of it so how do we make sure that um, something that is using ai 
doesn't get hijacked. And there has been some really interesting things on YouTube and things like that where people have been shown to demonstrate how they can hack a car system through some an open leak on the windscreen wiper and, and things like that. So there's got to be a fair bit of work done around that um, that cybersecurity bit to have that complete trust in there. Yeah, and you, you bring up cybersecurity. And I think, to me, cybersecurity is one of the largest sort of... Um, uh, not missing links, but <clears throat> sort of gaps, right, in in sort of the way that we're thinking about this. And we also, I want to link that back to um, something you said about, you know, data and, and personal data and what happens with it, right? So you have, you know, you mentioned GDPR. That, to me, the whole ethics of what happens to data, especially when you're collecting data on a person, right? It's one thing to get, driving habits right where you it might it you you have a car that's attached to an owner and you get driving habits from them and that to me is like one of those cases where it's probably okay to gather because you can't really tell who's behind the wheel um at any given time unless you have data on like seat height and you know, th there's other things that you can get right but it, it becomes a little bit less clear but when you're pointing a camera right at somebody and you're trying to get information on their body language, on the number of yawns that they're doing, uh, the number of blinks that they're doing, how long their eyes are closed while you're on the road. This becomes very dangerous uh, when you start to think about the implications for what uh, insurance companies can do yeah. with that type of data, right? And so, or even worse, right? Like, imagine if those are markers for other things, like um, I don't know, sales habits or something. I, I'm making a huge stretch here, but you know, if that data is exposed, uh, it's going to be a big problem for people to solve. And so cybersecurity comes down on all that. Then we have the ethics of that, right? You know, it, it, there's laws in some states and some countries that require people who are getting data collected on them to be notified, right? GDPR, I think, is kind of that, but for the internet, that's my understanding. Um, yes. And so will you need to have something where you hop into an automated taxi service that monitors the inside of the cab um, and collects data and operates on that data? Will you have to notify the, the, you know, passengers, you know, is it something where you, you summon an Uber or Lyft with your phone and while you're waiting and says, Hey, we're going to give you an automated vehicle while you're in there. We might collect video on you and this is what we're going to do with it. You know, and if you agree, hit yes. Otherwise, we'll get you a human driver. Um, you know, or, is or that no. or, or not? Uh, yeah, we, yeah. we don't have humans anymore. We got rid of them. Um, and so, like, is that something that you agree to up front? I feel like that's probably the loophole that a lot of companies are going to do. You know, hey, we might collect data on you while you're in the vehicle. Um, do It'll you agree? Yeah, that's, that's the agreement. Right? It'll be the latest implementation of the uh, the cookie agreement, won't it? So whenever you go to a website, yeah. we've got to collect cookies on you. Do you agree? Does anybody read that anymore? No, no they don't. They just collect go. It's, it's a bit like T's and C's on small print. You know, very few people read the T's and C's. Now, you know, no matter how many studies you do, they don't do it. You know, they just click OK and they'll they'll go through to use the uh, um, to use the capability. So. Right. Yes. So I, I was hinting at it a little bit, but I, I want to get into sort of the human factors bits within um, the people inside the car. Yeah. Right. We, we yeah. talked a lot last week. I keep saying last week. Talked a lot about last time 
the people outside the car and how the car interacts with them. Let's talk about some of the issues facing people inside the cabin, right? So you have um, and kind of the state of where things are at right now in terms of cabin monitoring, right? You have some things. I think this is your point. Do you want to talk about this? Yeah, so the, there's already some basic driving monitoring tools on the market. So um, you've, a lot of the systems have a camera mounted to the steering wheel or, or somewhere in the cabin that's tracking driver's eye movements and particularly like blink rates and things like that to determine whether the person's impaired. So they could be uh, distracted, they could be drowsy, they could be drunk, um, or they might just have a really weird blink rate. Um, who knows? But fundamentally, driving is a complex, you know, it's a cognitively demanding activity. Um, you're doing a whole lot of things at the same time. So you're constantly planning and replanning what you're doing. You've got to concentrate on what you're doing on the task itself. So you're trying to get from A to B. You're trying to navigate junctions. You're trying to look, um, understand where you are in relation to other vehicles on the road, as well as what's going on inside the car. Um, so, you know, have you got children crying? Have you got your partner talking to you? Have you got the radio on? Are you um, singing very loud music, as I, I sometimes do? Right. But it's not also not just about being in that moment. You've got to be anticipating what you're going to do next. Are you going to be going for, are you going forward? Are you going to do some sort of turning? Are you going, is somebody else going to do something that you you might have to react to? So you, you're, you're anticipating where things may or may uh, go wrong or, you know, a, a light might stop. You might be, you might have missed a junction or something. So you're actually having to problem solve on the go. Um, and do that sort of thing. You've got to be able to take complex situations with lots of different things going on. You could have bad weather and that type of thing. You've got to be able to react to that quite quickly and efficiently. And apparently, um, you meant to do all this quite calmly. Um, <laughs> some people may or may not do, and that's where AI might be slightly better. They might be slightly right. calmer than me. Um, but you've got to do things quite quickly, quite effectively, um, because everybody's on the road, and the road is a very dynamic place, and different people have different attitudes to it. Um, so then you might, uh, if you're doing all of this stuff all of the time, um, if you're tired and it could be just, you know, mild tiredness, like post-lunch dip, or it's because you've had a, a lack of sleep and, and, you know, long hours and that type of thing that affects how you concentrate. And, and it'll give you this idea of, um, what, what they call in the health safety terms of near misses. So where you haven't actually had an accident, but, Right. Because you took a last minute um, diversion, then you have um, you you could have had an accident. Um, it was very very close. It was a near miss. Um, those, I don't know whether you talk a bit more about near misses. Yeah, those by the way are really n not difficult, but um, but yeah, they are difficult to collect information on, right? Because no one reports near misses unless there's like some spectacular thing that happened. Um, you know, like you watch these dash cam videos of people who do these amazing recoveries, but yeah. don't have any damage to their vehicle. And you're like, oh, yeah, that wow, that could have been really bad. And those instances, it's like we don't really collect a whole lot of data on that um, that I know of. But, the, you know, these types of events, these don't these don't really cause injury and they don't have that much immediate impact other than kind of minorly disrupting road flow or something like that but um you know these near misses they, they tend to be kind of these indicators of um higher risk uh, uh individuals that might get into accidents right so the more the more near misses you might have those are good indicators of of sort of whether or not you'll get into an accident later on um and, and you mentioned drowsiness um you know near misses 
apparently are 14 times more common than actual accidents. And so if, if you're thinking about that, um, for somebody who's drowsy, that is incredibly important for mm. getting them off the road or, you know, getting them an energy drink or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, you know, thinking about concentration, right? That's the other thing. You mentioned all these complex factors about driving. There's, there's of course, the uh, concentration part of it, too, where um, you, you mentioned people in the car might be a distraction if you're looking back at the baby, if you're talking to somebody in the passenger seat, if you're singing out loud, closing your eyes, those types of things. Um, you know, those play a large uh, role in some of these accidents, right? So the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they estimate that about 25% of all accidents that were that are reported by the police involve some sort of inattention. Um, either dis drivers distracted, asleep, fatigued, lost in their thoughts, etc. Um, and that's really big. And so now if we if we start to piece all this stuff together, right? The where AI is at right now, uh, what the human factors issues are within the cabin, we can kind of revisit this article. The promise of using AI inside the cabin to help the human ultimately, right? Um, I think this is where we have the discussion. Like, what what key takeaways do you want to take away from this discussion, Barry? Well, when you let's look at the um, at where we need to drive a lot of this. I mean, the the point you were just making there around near misses in in other domains, near miss reporting is, is quite a is quite a significant thing. Um, in the workplace, you meant to report near misses. In aviation, you meant to report near misses. We don't do that on the road because um, there's no drive to drive to do so. So there needs to be something around. If we're going to use this sort of technology, there's got to have to be some sort of policy, some sort of uh, push to be able to do that. So in Europe, the the, the NCAP, uh, which is the new car assist, uh, assessment program, is now going to be or has been doing since 2020. Um, been rating cars based on the advanced occupant status monitoring. So what can it do already to do that? But to get a five-star rating, car makers will need to build in-car technologies that check for the driver fatigue and distraction. And, and starting in 2022, NCAP will award rating points for technologies that detect the presence of a child left alone in a car, potentially preventing tragic deaths by heat stroke, etc. That's kind of a, an aside. It, it's more about this is the fact that we've got to have some basic policy. We've got to have some driver within the um, uh, within the car market to be saying, right, this te these te technologies they need to be developed. They need to be done for for safety reasons. Um, so I think that that's going to be quite um, a, quite a good thing. Um, but can you see any sort of examples out there about where you know what sort of things we could do? Um, you know, in, in quite simple terms to to be able to um, help drivers. Yeah, I think there's a couple um, that the article here actually mentions itself. So, you know, if the driver's glancing at the speedometer too often or, um, you know, something like that where they're looking at it, the, the vehicle's display screen could send a gentle reminder on that um, on the speedometer to keep his eyes, his or her eyes on the road. Right. So that's like kind of bare bones right there. Mm -hmm. you, you're looking at something too often. Uh, you 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 get them to look back at the thing that they should be paying attention to, which is the road. Um, you, you also have sort of the other extreme where, you know, if a driver's texting or turning around uh, to check in on a baby vehicle could send a more urgent alert um, or even suggest that the driver pulls over uh, to a safe space. And then you also have like, 
even more extreme than that, you have the system actually taking over for the driver and pulling off yeah. to the side of the road uh, because they've they've deemed the driver to be um, too too uh, incapacitated to even do that much, right? Um, but I mean, like you think about driving is your central task and everything else is kind of per- periphery, and and so. <laughs> to have an AI system jump in at that point and be kind of a, a big step. But I mean, there's other things that you can do too, right? Like let's say, let's say the system notices you uh, are not looking at something often enough either. It could do a subtle, gentle push to that area too, right? I'm thinking like you're not checking your rear view mirror often enough. And so maybe, you know, just a subtle orange glow around it, you know, that, that might go, Oh, that's, that's a change. I need to look up in that direction. What was that change? Oh, hey, I need to check my rear view. What's going on back there, right? Um, and it's not even something that has to be constant, right? You're, you're not like instructing them to look at their rear view, but you just give them a subtle cue to say, okay, hey, yeah, oh, yeah, right. Look, look at those. Um, and then if they don't do it again, you know, more attention to it, maybe a slightly brighter orange or something, you know, up to the red where it's like, hey, you really need to look. Um, so I think there's there's some good examples out there of what a system like this could do. There's also sort of the conversation of, well, where could this go in the future and what kind of crazy things could we think? Uh, Barry, can you think of any crazy things we could think up in the future? Well, I'm surprised we haven't come up with the idea of the artificial intelligence ejecting the baby that's been distracting. Oh, yeah, there uh, you go. That's that's perfect. That's, that's probably not what we should do. But no, you, I mean, you... All cars are now prided around, you know, the, the in-car entertainment, aren't they? So even if you're, you know, you own your vehicle or it's a ride-sharing vehicle, why why can't we leverage that artificial intelligence to deliver content based on, you know, the rider's engagement, the their emotional state, their their reactions and personal preferences? And it could really, you know, that could vary on the different type of trip you're going on, the situation you're doing, the the meeting you're going to, or the um, the family occasion you're there. So if you're going to say, I don't know, a sporting event. Um, the system could basically serve up the ads that are relevant to that activity. And um, if you th- think that the passenger is responding well to the ad, then he might offer you know, a coupon or um, for, for a snack at the game. It, you know, happy happy customers, happy advertisers, um, a really sort of focused, um, uh, fo- focused event and focused journey. Um, and I guess that then leads you to, to say, well, actually, is it more of a mobile media lab? Because by observing the reactions to the content, which you've got your audience basically sat there in a fairly fixed space. Um, and so you could really read the reactions. The The system could offer recommendations. It could pause the audio if the user becomes too inattentive and and customize the ads in accordance with with, with their preferences. So content providers could really use this to uh, determine which channels deliver the most engaging content um, and use it to set ad premiums and stuff. So it it could be a really sort of proactive way to give you that sort of um, that that media experience that um, you know ties in your entire journey. Or is that just gone a bit too crazy? No, I think that makes sense, right? I think it gets a little questionable when you know we're trying to like advertise to people. But I mean, in terms of like content recommendations, like let's say I'm on my way to a conference uh, versus a vacation with my family, right? You know, it's you mentioned that kind of uh, personalization, right? Based on the context or reason of the trip, right? That that I could see being something really cool. I'm going to Human Factors and Ergonomic Society, and I want to I want to see things about. Um, you know, the, the city that I'm in, because maybe I've been too focused on the conference and not enough about Mm -hmm. the destination and, oh, Hey, check this out. There's, there's something down the way here that you might want to check out, or here's some human factors history in, in the city that, you know, 
I don't I don't know who's producing that content. If you're producing that content, let me know. I'd love to have you on the yeah. show. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's cool. And I think um, these these types of examples that we just mentioned here are just kind of breaking the surface, right? It, Absolutely. I think ultimately these types of systems can be used to make things much safer, uh, to make systems much more reliable, and to just make transportation, surface transportation in general, much more enjoyable and sort of, uh, it, it keeps coming back to safety. But yeah, I mean, that's really the goal. Just keep people alive when they go from point A to point B. Uh, any other closing thoughts on this one, Barry? Um, I guess just one more, and it was kind of inspired, and I think I've mentioned him the other week, is um, a point that uh, Professor Paul Salmon made on Twitter, I think it was today. Um, basically, the we are spending a lot of time trying to make AI inside and outside the car fit inside um, the current world, which is not made for AI. We're trying to crowbar something um, that is very clever into a non-clever environment. So is there, should we be thinking also, not just about the car itself, but the environment that it's driving in? Um, in order to to meet that uh, that safety ambition, um, so I guess very altruistic, uh, very, very high level thinking there. But I just, it just sort of uh, uh, chimed a, a thought with me there that maybe we we should also be looking outside the car um, in terms yeah. of this technology. Yeah, good good thoughts. All right, well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at the IEEE Spectrum for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, uh, you can. I I've not been doing office hours, admittedly, but but that's because news has been light. It usually gets pretty light around the holidays. Anyway, uh, I sometimes do office hours. You can find me there, and we do post the links to all of our original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be uh, back to see what's going on around the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. All right, huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors Cast staff patrons, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Uh, so we're going to do a little something a little different here. Um, normally, this is where we talk about Patreon. We talk about Patreon a lot. Uh, but one of those things that we do for Patreon is Human Factors Minute. And this is... Something that I like to do from time to time because I'm a huge data nerd. I really like understanding uh, what exactly we promised and what exactly we're delivering. So let's talk about that. Right now, as of the time of this recording, uh, we have 96 episodes of Human Factors Minute available for your consumption. Um, this is counting the TMC's episodes, which everyone gets for free. Um, but our total time in Human Factors Minutes is one hour, 56 minutes, and 16 seconds. That is Hold a lot. Hold on a second. Yeah. 96 episodes of Human Factors Minutes. So that should be 96 minutes. You would expect it. it. You would expect that, right? 
Uh, so let's let's talk about it. the average length is actually seventy three seconds. So you're actually getting a little bit more than a minute on average. Um, which so, so we should be calling it human factors minute and a quarter. It, we could we could it doesn't ring it doesn't roll okay. off the tongue as easily. No, that's true. But let's actually look at some of the stats here, right? So twenty five of them are clock in at one minute exactly or less, uh, and seventy five of them are sixty one seconds or longer. With fourteen of those. 14 of those 45 being longer than 90 seconds. Um, so so we actually did our longest one was the most recent one that we did on uh, surface transportation, uh, the technical group at HFES. Th- that was at a minute and 59 seconds. I think any longer than that, that's kind of my absolute limit with it, right? We don't want to go beyond that because then it wouldn't be a human factors minute. I'm still counting that first minute. Uh, we're rounding down. That's, that's still not a minute. I, I hate to be the bearer of, of whatever. Is, but that's still twice as much as what you promised. Look, I'm, I'm like, rounding down. As long as it has one. in the, We round up anything below a minute and we round down anything above a minute in between two. Minutes. So that's that's how it, that's how that math works out. Right. Um, one of my favorite episodes of Human Factors Minute still remains ancient human factors history. Uh, that's available for free to everyone right now. In fact, the first 10 episodes, as well as the TMC's uh, Human Factors Minutes, are available to everyone for free. You can check out our Patreon for details on that. Um, and one last little tease for you all. That is uh, the only place where you can get Blake for exclusive Blake content right now. Um, we're still working on getting him back soon, so uh, bear with us on that. But that's that's where you can get to Blake for now. Um, that's all I have. It's it's kind of fun to jump into those metrics from time to time. It's a little uh, little extra thing. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into this next part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. That's right. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. It's it came from this week. It is Reddit. If you find these answers helpful, uh, give us a like to help other people find this type of content. All right. We got three tonight. They are all great questions. Let's tackle this first one first. Uh, it says, would you work at a company that doesn't use Figma? And I'm going to go ahead and extrapolate here and say we're going to be talking about not just Figma, but other tools here, right? Um, I had an interview at a tech company. The interview said they primarily use Azure since they have better prototyping slash interaction features than Figma. They want me to do a design challenge for the next round. I asked if I could use Figma. They said to try and download the free trial of Azure since that's what they use. Uh, I asked what they like better about Azure than Figma. They said they can make detailed prototypes for user testing. If it's a design challenge uh, and that I'm being tested on my UX and critical thinking skills, shouldn't the tool not matter so much? I use Figma plus protopie i haven't heard that one and uh find it way more efficient than azure mind you the job description listed figma as one of the tools also so let's talk about this um from two perspectives right one should the tool prevent you from completing task and two uh what happens if a company is forcing you to do a tool use a tool for either um an interview or the work itself barry take it away yeah, so it's an interesting one, this isn't it? Because I think if they're just wanting to see um, an example of you doing things, then actually maybe the tool doesn't matter so much. 
But if you're going to go for and work for a company, you're wanting to go and work for a company and their tool set is that they use as your, um, or whatever the tool is, it, it doesn't matter. And it could be, you know, almost across the piece. I, I have a really interesting discussion with um, um, sister company that uh, of ours that they use um, Google for most of their, their, um, their office suite and we use Microsoft. And it's one of the things of like, well, if you want to come do, our ecosystem is set up to use that whatever it is and if they're using azure as their as their design tool then why do you want to go in and throw go in and improve basically stick something in there that says i want to come and work for you but i don't want to come and use any of your tools therefore you're making it harder for them to accept you and for them to you want to make if you want to go and work for them then you need to be making yourself um understand that, that that's what that's what they're going to go and use so I kind of see that what this person is saying, you know, actually that you want to do my design, you you want my UX skills, um, critical thinking skills, and it shouldn't matter the way I do it. The truth of the matter is it does matter um, because if you're not willing to go and use the tool set that the company is going to use, and yet the person next to you is willing to go and use the tool set they're going to use, and you can both do UX, that's going to be a deciding factor. So, yeah, I think you just need to crack on and, and learn how to use Azure because... It is actually, I, I do agree to a certain extent that um, that the, the tool, the two tools are, are have their pluses and minuses. Um, but if that's what the company want you to use, then I'd suck it up, Buttercup. What do you think? <laughs> I have I have conflicting views on this, right? I think um, I think a company should be supportive if a an employee wants to use a different tool within reason. Um, if you know, a key part of their package as an employee uh, relies on a specific tool, then I think maybe the employee should be willing to um, expand, you know, like maybe a key functionality or something is contained within a certain tool. It might be, it might be a, um, a good justification, but that employee is, is the one responsible for bringing up that justification. At the same time, I think you should be flexible. And I don't think tools really matter. I could use Excel or I could use Google Sheets. Doesn't much matter. I can do most of the same things in both of those programs um, with some differences, obviously. But like tools shouldn't matter. Uh, it's exactly what you're talking about here. And in terms of interviews, I'm a little torn on this one. Uh, I think I think maybe the company should be more receptive to using a different tool. Maybe they don't have a license. Uh, and especially if you're trying to use a free version and evaluate somebody's skills based on, um, you know, their unfamiliarity with a new product, I think that's a little unfair. Um, I think if a, if an employee truly values somebody's ability to do the core uh, responsibilities of a the job, they should be willing to see what their work looks like and the, their preferred tool and then, you know, kind of ask them to switch over and provide the training required. You know, a tool is a tool. You can train up on a new tool and cha tools change all the time. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I think everything's kind of bad here. <laughs> I, don't know. I think the point you made around, you know, if if and I think this is a bit of a distinction for me is if you've got an employee and I've, I've been there where an employee has turned around to me and actually it was with with Azure as well. Um, they turned around and said, actually, you're doing stuff in, in this um, way. If you used Azure, then we could actually do it a lot cleaner a lot simpler you could you could do a lot of this stuff and i was like absolutely well yeah let's try it let's give me a demonstration let's pick a system we'll design the system right. we'll the system. and that's one thing i think but here i think we because you are wanting the job um 
and I kind of get have that feeling of why you know fundamentally if I'm going if the company's asked me to do X as a demonstration and there's two of us sat there, um, why would I do something that puts me at a, you know at such distinct odds um, if I'm wanting the job and if if I'm want if I don't want the job that much that I'm willing to have a fight with the person who is not even my employer yet, then you don't want it that much. So what's the you know what what what's the gold neg at the end of this? Um, you you clearly want employment, and if you don't want employment, then why are you interviewing in the first place? Yeah, well said. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I don't know. That's that's where I stand on that one. Not it's not too controversial. <laughs> Learn to adapt to new tools and let people use their preferred tool. It's all the same, right? <laughs> Completely conflicting information. Uh, just just make it happen. All right, let's uh, get into this next one here. This one is by um, IDK. What to put as my user on the user experience subreddit? Uh, this is a UX job without the title. I'm a junior with a new junior role doing user experience. However, my title doesn't sound like the typical UX ones. It sounds more related to data or marketing. Will this matter when I'm applying for more UX jobs in the future? Barry, what do you think? Does job title impact your hireability for future prospects? No. Not all. Um, I think if you all right, we're moving uh, on to the next one. No, I'm just kidding. Yep, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I think no. I mean, fundamentally, if you're if you're doing stuff and you know you really put down just a job title, you put down a bit of a description as well. Um, job titles, you know, we've seen we've seen some amazing job titles from people who are at like sort of Google and them sort of things where you make up your own job title and stuff. Um, the I think the job titles itself doesn't really matter. Um, I think you you have your little bit of blurb which will say that you do UX work or whatever it is. Um, and then you could, it, it, in fact, could be make it a bit more intriguing. So I don't think it really matters too much. But that goes. I go back to what I've said in previous episodes about the difference, cultural differences between UK, and US. Is UK we typically don't have straight, you know, we don't have very discrete UX roles or you know UX research or UX designer. More people are clumped in together. You know, you be a master of two or three trades, um, and that's fine. So there might be a bit of a difference in the US. What what do you think no um i mean look it i've heard it both ways here um let's slap my it depends button because the uh in some ways i i like i wouldn't look away from anyone who submitted their resume uh for for a position like just off the merits of job title. Like that's not something that I would do. I wouldn't go, oh, this person says they're data analysis and they're applying for a design role. No, like that's not something that happens. Um, I would look at it and I might scratch my head a little bit going, uh, hmm, data analysis, that's interesting. Um, you know, but as long as everything checked out on the resume, like the stuff that they've written in their resume was like, hey, did this type of research, did this type of, you know, and it's like, Okay, well, I can see what you're going for here. Your job title just didn't match your role, and it's it's really what you're writing below that. Um, and so, to me, that doesn't matter. The thing where it might matter is where um, systems use automated, uh, like let's say this is your only job, and systems use automated uh, sorting techniques to weed out resumes um, for a potentially high. Um, highly sought after position that might be a case where you might just want to change it on your resume and say like hey look if you go and contact the employer they'll say i actually did this uh, as my job title but um you know kind of explain it away in the resume 
and but I mean, really, you shouldn't have to lie too much. It's just it's fine. And like you said, Barry, I think it is actually more intriguing um, if somebody is coming from one of those other, you know, uh, uh, titles, because then it's like, uh, tell me that story. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So makes you interesting. Makes you makes you unique. Yes, there you go. All right, let's get into this last one here. This one's from uh, Jell and Drail on the user experience subreddit. How to get projects for your first portfolio when you don't have real customers? Is there something like front end mentor? I don't know what that is. Uh, or brief box for UX projects? I don't know what those are. But how do you get, uh, let's see here, data when you don't have real customers? They go on to write, I want to switch careers from building websites uh, and doing UI designs to a full-blown UX career. Been working in the web field for seven years now. Um, now I'd like to switch to the UX field and really take users' needs front and center. The agency I'm working at really isn't that professional. I don't have great products to show, which means I have to create about four to five new portfolio projects. I'm doing the Google UX certificate course right now, and I'll have some projects by the end of it. When I have something that doesn't just look like a course project and that has uh, that may look real, do you have any ideas on where to get briefings and data for projects like this, or do you have proven approaches on how to get such a project rolling all by myself? Any help would be highly appreciated. And thanks in advance. All right, Barry, we've tackled this question before, but I think it's bear it bears repeating. It bears mm -hmm. repeating. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tackle this question? So I guess for me, a lot of it is around um, actually some cool ways of doing this is look at where a local charity, local voluntary um, organizations might want some sort of experience. Um, and you can basically get briefs from them and ensure that, you know, you're, you're going to use some of your time and, and effort into producing then some some great product. Not only then will you um, get some um, things in your portfolio, but you will actually find you'll probably make some really interesting contacts that you didn't think about making in the first place. Um, so that will work. Also, actually making up your own project isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, if you can work out, um, you know, problems and ideas that you know that you that could that could be solved um in terms of sort of web design or web websites then as long as you document what you're doing and the use case that you're sort of doing it for um and the, the problem that you're trying to solve you can actually roll through quite a lot of it um on your own um but certainly the the best examples i've seen of that is is going down that voluntary route and finding people who need um you know, the, the websites that wouldn't necessarily be able to engage with them normally that kind of works for me but and i know you've got some um different ideas as well uh, nick so what, what are you yeah. what's your suggestions so so let's see here uh a couple things i think your points are great and uh i don't disagree with them at all i think um this topic is something that i feel pretty passionate about and uh i have like a non-trivial more serious draft of like a, a masterclass type uh, <laughs> program for exactly this. And if that's something that people are interested in and want to actually find out more about, I encourage you to write in to let me know that this is a great idea and that I should pursue it. Um, you know, step-by-step -step guidance for how to do something like this to, to help, um, you know, uh, students or people even who are looking to switch over into UX to build up their portfolios without the user data. If this is something you're interested, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but my my um, my high level advice here is that the the problems exist. 
You just need to go and look for them. Um, and so whether that is, you know, like you said, Barry, at a local agency or if it's um, or, or if it's with an established product that you feel passionate about, I think there are plenty of opportunities to look for it. And when it comes to real data, there are ways to get that uh, without sort of um, without faking it or it's it's real user data. Um, and that's that's the interesting piece to me, right? You can go to uh, some of these uh, forms that are out there, like the Reddit sub communities or anything like that, and look for problems that people have with the program, the game, the system, whatever you're uh, wanting to use for your portfolio and find a way to solve it. Um, and in your project, in your portfolio, cite that as a real issue that users needed uh fixed with with whatever metric that you're going by right you can you can state it was by a uh, number of upvotes uh, you know um days visible on whatever uh or number of votes in a zendesk platform or something like that right there there are ways of getting real user data that you can use to populate projects and it's a great place to look for ideas if you're stuck and don't know where to go next anyway that's my tease if that is something that you're interested in let me know i like like I said, I have a not not trivia. It, it's it's pretty thought out. So if that's something you want to see me produce, let me know. I'm happy to do that. Um, all right. I think uh, we get into this last part of the show. We call one more thing. It needs no introduction. So let's just get into it. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? So my one more thing was actually I was doing my planning for the rest of year for my podcast. I can't believe it's December. It's it is December. The, it's, it's absolutely crazy because the I basically got one more podcast episode from for my thing to record this year and I'm done 2021 it's out there so I think now it's that case of um even though it's yes we've only just turned December but it's now we're getting into that festive season and we're now going to think about parties and things like that and whether we can go for parties with it, with everything else that's going on but it's that it's that fundamental thing now it's it's it, we can start that wine sort of that wind down I've got a bit of a wind up before a bit of a wind down this month but it's i just can't get over that we are talking about being in december already it's just it's 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 mind-blowing in many ways the so, uh yeah, yeah. i i want to jump in because the the last like i don't know six or six to eight weeks of the of the year uh has this weird time dilation effect where it's both fast and slow uh simultaneously um yeah insane like yeah. like like Thanksgiving was a week ago for us here in the States. And it's like, that was just last week. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, you know, Chris, Christmas is going to be here tomorrow. And it's, <laughs> it's like, wow. All right. Um, yeah. Anything else for your one more thing? No, that was it. I just quite, um, th this year has gone, gone by in the bit of flash of a flash of an eye. Yeah. So, what about you? So where are you at? Uh, yeah, well, my one more thing is going to be the same one more thing that I had for last week, except now we have more details. So on mm -hmm. Friday, December 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern um, is going to be the first uh, HFES presidential town hall. So HFES uh, is putting on this town hall. Yours truly is going to be uh, moderating the event. Um, and it's basically an opportunity for you to discuss the latest human factors industry news trends um even state of the society if you want to show up for that it's uh 
Chris Reed is going to be there, friend of the show, and we'll also have uh, President-elect uh, Carolyn Summerrich is going to be there as well. So it's going to be a great time. Um, come, ask your questions. Uh, we're still working on setting up the event itself. You can find it in our feed right now. Uh, we're working on getting it linked up for all of them as well. You can find it on any of our channels, any of the HFES channels. Uh, it will be out there. But uh, that is going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news new story this week. Um, if you like this episode, we do invite you to check out the episode that we did just last time, episode 226, where we take a look at the state of autonomous vehicles and how they interact with the pedestrians. Uh, comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, join us on our Slack or Discord communities. You can always visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, there's a couple ways that you can support the show. One, you can leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. You can do that right now, uh, and it makes us happy when we see those. Two, you could tell your friends about us. That is also free for you to do. It's a little bit more social pressure because you have to work it into conversation, but that is how we grow. That is an awesome way to help us grow. And three, if you're able to financially, it is the holiday season, so I totally get it if not. Um, but if you want to make our holidays, <laughs> you can consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, we are too away from being self-sustainable. And we have some interesting applications that we're looking to spend uh, the next tier of donations in. So, as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about automated vehicles, AI, inside cars? On Twitter, you can find me at Baz underscore K. And you can also listen to uh, my ramblings on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, which you'll find at www.1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch some Mondays <laughs> for <laughs> office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.